Good morning. What a wonderful sound. Laughter. Pure hearts. My name is Fred H. and I'm a grateful alcoholic. Honored again to be here in this uh, place of immense, rich AA history and dedicated to serving the fellowship. And thanks again, Bonnie, for keeping this this opportunity alive, and let's just take a minute to meditate. For me, I, I always loved to, th- to think, you know, the first two years of my recovery were pure euphoria because every morning I woke up and I didn't have a hangover, and it was like, oh, man, how beautiful is this? And so um, I like to d- begin to think I can get a grasp of the dimension of suffering averted since I've gotten sober, and the dimension of joy revealed. And when I consider those two things together, I can't. It's it's indescribable. The dimension of suffering averted and simultaneous to the dimension, dimension of joy revealed. So let's just take a minute to be quiet with ourselves in whatever way you're comfortable, and then we'll get started. And please do this if you're listening to this on the tape as well. Thank you. I used to think that it was self-centeredness that had me do that at the beginning of presentations because I was the one who really needed to quiet some insecurity I was feeling. And then the lessons of this program for me as of late are all about it's okay for me to get my needs met as long as I do it in a manner that is proper to God and appropriate to others. Proper to God, meditation, and appropriate to others, we all get to do it. So now I don't have to uh, accuse myself of being self-centered when I do that, even though I benefit from it as well. So uh, quick summary of where we've been 
broadening and deepening our understanding of the 12 steps as first written in the earlier work and intended use of the 12 and 12 big book study. The foreword of the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions book, and actually I was recalling in that detox thing I talked about yesterday, Fred, go get a 12 and 12, what's that? I knew about the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions book. I didn't know that it was called the 12 and 12, so I hadn't picked up the jargon yet. But just this uh, this book has taken on so much more meaning for me because I've been studying it in the context of its intended use, which is reviewed on page 17 in the foreword. The book Alcoholics Anonymous became the basic text of the fellowship, and it still is. This present volume, the 12 and 12, proposes to broaden and deepen the understanding of the 12 steps as first written in the earlier work. And so our idea for this uh, seminar has been to study the 12 steps as written in the earlier work and then enhance our understanding and expand our understanding of those principles using this as an adjunctive text. The other elements of this that have become so important for me in understanding what the 12 and 12 emphasizes, even though it was written by Bill with kind of an editorial board, so it isn't it is conference-approved literature, but it's not technically the voice of the first 100, and I always keep that in mind. These are Bill's opinions, and Bill was a human being. Um, more and more, the stories um, seep out of the history of you know what a human being he was, um, and I can relate to Bill. AA's 12 steps are a group of principles. This is on page 15 of the foreword. AA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can, one, expel the obsession to drink, and two, enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. And I, need, I want to make this point all morning, that what gets our attention in addiction isn't what needs our attention for recovery. And what gets our attention for addiction is the illness of the body and the illness of the mind. The inability to predict when we're going to stop once we've started, the illness of the body, and the inability to not do it again in spite of our most sincere promises and commitments not to do it. And we get a really bad reputation because the world doesn't understand addiction. They think we don't care. They think we don't love them. And in fact, we do care and we do love them. We just have an illness that dictates how we behave when it comes to alcohol and drugs. So that's this number one. Expel the obsession to drink has to do with the initial dealing with the illness of the body and the illness of the mind, which is what gets our attention. What the 12 steps also uh, provide if practiced as a way of life, enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. That addresses the spiritual malady. So what we're really talking about is getting out of the grips of alcohol initially and then continuing to work on the third dimension of the disease, which we graduate to on page 64 in the big book. For we had been not only mentally can't quit and physically can't use ill, we had been spiritually sick. And the spiritual sickness is characterized as over-reliance on self, which is a lot less critical sounding than selfish, self-centeredness that we think is the root of our trouble driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity. We stepped on the toes of others and they retaliated. Um, sorry. Uh, why don't I just go shoot myself? So this information is for me to help me have a true sense of when it comes to alcohol and drugs, there's no arena for me to fight them in. And when it, becomes, and when it comes to being blocked from God, I can't get unblocked on my own. And I think that's the toughest part of step one to get, that even though we know we need to change, we know... You know, the, the quitting drinking and, and using often happens fairly quickly in the 12 by 
explains in some reasons, some ways, why that happens fairly quickly. But this inability to get happy or stay happy on our own, I think, is one of the main elements that the 12 and 12 sheds a lot more light on. So, um, and just because I love the two words, I want to mention again that, that for me, as a guy who thinks about things long before he feels them, um, Scandinavian in, in ethnic background, um, high suicide rates up there, uh, a lot of stoic kinds of, we don't talk about it. It's a great book um, by a Harvard psychiatrist called, and it's a book about depression in men, and it's called, I Don't Want to Talk About It. <laughs> and uh, I think it's an important uh, um, element, again, for personal um, uh, compassion that a lot of times being male raised in this um, uh, culture uh, really puts a big lid on some important elements of our humanness. Walter. Which which word? Yeah, a daily destination. It's all we got. Daily reprieve. For that day. <laughs> and you got to start it up the next morning. After you make sure you stayed whole when you went to bed at night during that day. This is a um, this is a way of life, and I, when when Ernest Kurtz acknowledges that Bill bookended this 12 and 12 with the phrase, a way of life. This is not something we typically dabble at. If we dabble at it, we get the results of dabbling, kind of um, marginal results. But uh, completely giving ourselves to this simple program, um, it, that's an easier thing for me to do today, even though I still do it. I, I, I always talk about I make a modicum of an effort to live spiritually each day and get great results. Uh, but for me to understand why I need to work on this all the time, uh, because what I'm up against in sobriety, what I'm up against when I'm not drinking and using, there isn't a person in this room, I, I, I would think, whose problem is alcohol and drugs today. My illness when I'm not drinking and using, is my humanness because that's what blocks me from God. So each day I'm addressing my illness, but it's actually just my humanness. And what my humanness is, is this constellation of instincts that I think are comprehensively summarized in that sheet that I gleaned from the Recovery Dynamics Counselor's Manual. Um, just example after example uh, help me make sense of, of aberrant personal or others' behavior for simple understanding. And that gives me a, a shot at tolerance and love because it gives me a shot at compassion because it gives me a shot at understanding that this is not a bad person who needs to get good. This is a good person who needs to get well. So... Um, I quickly want to go over, because I think it's important as a sponsor um, to be able to give some of this information to the newcomer and, and the, um, what do you call it, the uh, front of the big book where they list the chapters, table of contents. Table of contents. Um, if you wish, um, I'm going to just quickly go over where the directions for the steps are in the table of contents in the front of the big book um, so that a newcomer might understand that what's on the wall is a summary of those directions. And I, for the longest time, thought that the summary of the 12 steps was the 12 steps. And I practiced the summary of the 12 steps. And I was fortunate to have had a spiritual experience that gave me a level of willingness that carried me through 
those years. And then I was ready to have more revealed, and boy, was it revealed October 8th, 9th, and 10th, 1988, 12 years into my recovery, when um, I heard my first Joe and Joe McHugh and Charlie P. Uh, Big Book Comes Alive seminar. So step one, uh, and this is kind of an average, but I think it's, it's helpful. Step one is the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, the first half of chapter two, there is a solution, pages 17 to 25, all of chapter three, more about alcoholism, specifically the illness of the mind, and pages 60 to 64 in, what's that, chapter 5? Uh, no, 60, pages 60 to 64, how it works, yeah. So step one, doctor's opinion, Bill's story, first half of chapter two, there is a solution. You know, that's where it talks about the moderate or hard drinker versus the real alcoholic. All of Chapter 3, more about alcoholism. And the oddest one, the outlier, pages 60 to 64 in Chapter 5. Actually, in the section of the book on 3 and 4, the most critical element of Step 1 is delivered. Step 2, second half of Chapter 2. There is a solution, pages 25 to 29, and all of chapter 4, we agnostics. Now it's a little easier. In addition to 6064 in chapter 5, pages uh, on step 1, chapter 5 is basically steps 3 and 4. Chapter 6 is steps 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. Chapter 6 is steps 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. And Chapter 7 is step 12. In addition to that, people have shared with, with me and Paige. Paige and I were part of a, a brand new meeting, getting a new meeting going in New York. Um, and we looked at the big book. Uh, looking for four things, and this is these are like big book study aids, uh, ways to help the big book become more interesting and not kind of a, a, an assignment of drudgery. But the four things that this meeting was based on to look for in the big book are directions, promises, warnings, and prayers. Directions, promises, warnings, and prayers. And the interesting thing about directions and its relationship with promises and warnings, if you follow directions, guess what you get? The promises. And this is how they wrote the book, you know, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Well, one of the things they did was they said, this is what we did, and then this is how we felt. So reading the promises uh, is a very good way to, to ask how I'm doing. Am I experiencing the promises? If somebody would have had me read the famous promises on pages 83 and 84, 12 years into my recovery, there would have been some real holes. I still had, you know, fear of people. Uh, there were a number of things that weren't really going on, but in general I felt fine. So. Uh, that would have been helpful information for me. And then obviously if you don't follow directions, you get the warnings. Now as I mentioned yesterday, the warnings in the big book are often preceded by the word but, or it's five undercover agents, yet, though, still, however, and on the other hand. And I'm sure there are 50 more, at least, in the English language, but the reversing words. Um, so look for promises, warnings, directions, and prayers. And prayers, interestingly enough, Every action step, starting with three, has a prayer. And the third step prayer is pretty famous. The fourth step prayer we went over yesterday. We asked God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. Or, this is a sick person, how can I be helpful to them? 
There's a fifth-step prayer, six-step prayer, seven-step prayer. It's another famous prayer, seven-step prayer. But every prayer, as explained in the 11th step in the big book, can't be self-centered. And the 12-by the, the continues to make that clear as to why prayer can't have specifics in it for me. Uh, even it talks about, you know, if somebody's sick, essentially it's saying um, in the 12-by, uh, we don't necessarily pray that they get well. We pray that God's will be carried out, that the right thing happen. Um, and so every prayer in the big book, interestingly enough, has this element of what it says in the Step 11 directions. <clears throat> we can pray for ourselves if it means we will help others. And I love the story of a, a guy that I met at the farm. He's a stonemason. He would come every fall. Ted. And uh, I used to, 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 when I taught there, I would say, uh, so you can't pray to win the lottery. You have to pray to win the lottery so you can get a bigger car to take more guys to meetings. And you have to mean it. If you're, just do, if you're just manipulating, you know, like, oh, okay, so that I can take more guys to meetings. That doesn't work. You've got to really mean it. It has to be pure. So about a year after we left the farm, uh, Ted sent me a postcard, and it said, Fred, I won the Connecticut State Lottery, $64,000, something like that. I got a new crew cab truck to take more guys to meetings. It was great. <laughs> just... So that, um, that has, you know, again, that's a little extra on the prayers. Um, in another, uh, I think, big book suggestion when you're reading it is to pay attention to the italicized words. Um, there's one part in the book that is an italicized paragraph that starts with the word but. So, you know, get down on your hands and knees when you hit that one. Uh, they just, their, their emphasis, um, really important stuff. And then pay attention to the words that are capitalized in the big book. They refer to the spiritual path, and you'll see a lot of different words capitalized. Great reality. Road, uh, let's see, road of happy destiny. Road, is that right? Um there, it, it, you'll, you'll be. I, I've been. I'm always a little surprised. Uh, the only one that I've found that is capitalized is it's World War. But I guess back then they capitalized World War. They were talking about World War One. Pay attention to the capitalized letters. Um, and then the, <coughs> the one I mentioned yesterday uh, that Joe H uh, taught me: uh, turn each statement into a personal question. My illness is reading this with me. And my illness doesn't want to be dismantled. My illness doesn't want me to see these things. And so I need to read this as clearly as I can and help others read it as clearly as I can. <clears throat> and by turning each statement into a personal question, um, it, it really changes it. And I gave the example of the bedevilments. You know, am I... Um, Instead of we were having trouble with personal relationships, am I having trouble with personal relationships? This is, I'm not here. This is um, kind of a, a skill, I think, that it's easier for me to do it now than it was when I first started doing it. Um, however, I think it really, when I pay attention to what I'm reading, it really brings the message home to me of what the book's talking about. And then the other one I probably haven't mentioned yet but have demonstrated that I find helpful, and again, these are just suggestions. They're not uh, anything other than that, uh, is to replace each pronoun that you read with the noun that it's referring to. Replace each pronoun, like it, he, they, <coughs> with whatever more proper noun, formal noun that it's referring to. And I think of that string of uh, 
sentences at the bottom of 64, last paragraph on page 64, where it says, resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else doesn't have the impact for my reading as resentment destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease. From resentment stem all forms of spiritual disease. And again, it's just to make it clear because complacency and getting slick with ourselves, um, resting on our laurels when things get so wonderful as they do fairly quickly in this program uh, for us um, is our greatest sin in the future. And remember, I use the term sin now because I understand an ancient meaning of it as an archery term that means off the mark. That character circle is sin, over-reliance on self, improper use of my free will. The solution side character is on the mark. This is the bullseye, the problem figure. Now, just some new suggestions born out of my early uh, study of the 12 by of the themes that are acknowledged in some of the historical writings that I've uh, studied and then also just what jumps off the page for me every day because context has made the whole difference of my reading the 12 and 12 now with and being fed a lot versus just kind of reading it in the past. Um, and the most important part for me in reading the 12 by is to understand that it was meant to broaden and deepen my understanding of the 12 steps as written in the big book. Uh, that's the biggest one. Um, and then looking for the themes, and, and they just, God, they even get more and more uh, in the chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Uh, early versus mature sobriety. Uh, even in that enable us to get sober and enable the sufferer uh, to live happily in whole lives. Um, those two, it's just constant. And a lot of what the 12 and 12 talks about is what blocks us from that mature sobriety. And of course, it's talking about our spiritual malady. And of course, then it talks a lot about the instincts because the instincts are this way of understanding our humanness that's relatively predictable in each of us, that these drives, these desires, these natural appetites to be fulfilled, we wake up to them every morning and we go to bed with them every night. Uh, I find a lot of good coaching as a sponsor in the 12 by. It just says our sponsors told us, so it's almost like a script for sponsoring. Um, it's my opinion, see, opinion, uh, that there are several sections in the 12 by that when Bill is essentially sharing his fifth step on sex, on relationships, uh, it reads, knowing some of his personal history uh, from other writings, that he's just essentially demonstrating that he doesn't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it, and he's able to just put it out there. And then uh, the other thing that I'm finding in the 12 by are tons of new promises. If we do this, then this is what we're going to experience. And again, a lot of the promises have to do with mature sobriety, uh, the management of our human instincts so that they don't dominate us. They're actually just kind of a healthy part of us. And the only other thing I want to do right now is to highlight two phrases that I think support the fact that in, in a very oversimplified way, I have one problem, and in a very oversimplified way, therefore I have one solution. And where this is made clear is in the rest of the paragraph on page 42 in the 12 by that I didn't read yesterday, which I want to start with this morning. 
in the first paragraph it finishes, so these desires for the sex relations, for material and emotional security, and for companionship are perfectly necessary and right and surely God-given. There's nothing wrong with these instincts. Yet, warning word, these instincts so necessary for our existence often far exceed their proper function. So in terms of our circles here, the instincts in the solution side are perfectly necessary and right and surely God-given. This is our divine design. Yet, these instincts so necessary for our existence often far exceed their proper function. Over-reliance on self. And an absolutely equivalent statement to that is over-reliance on instincts. Getting our needs, demanding our needs being met in the world. So let's, you thought you were powerless over alcohol and drugs? Here's a challenge to mature sobriety. Yet these instincts so necessary for our existence often far exceed their proper functions. Powerfully, blindly, many times subtly, they drive us, dominate us, and insist upon ruling our lives. This is powerlessness, folks. Our desires for sex, for material and emotional security, and for an important place in society, and again, Bill is so careful to just rephrase these, social sex and security in slightly different ways, often tyrannize us. When thus out of joint our natural desires cause us great trouble, practically all the trouble there is. No human being, however good, is exempt from these troubles. Why? Because no human being is exempt from the instincts. Nearly every serious emotional problem can be seen as a case of misdirected instinct. Take that list of the three parts of self, and if you're a, a professional, grab your DSM-4 and have at the constellation of combinations of instincts under or over developed that constitute mental health issues. When, thus, when that happens... <coughs> Our great natural assets, please note the self-thumbnail in the solution side, have turned into physical and mental liabilities. So our illness of the mind and our illness from the body flows from the illness of the mind, from the spirit. Let me restate that back up here. Our illness of the body and our illness of the mind flow from our illness of the spirit. And all the rest of the trouble that we experience in the world is that spiritual malady manifest in the world. Now, the great news, the antidote for this, is on page 64 as we continue in that last paragraph on resentment. From resentment stem all forms of spiritual disease, for we have been not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. Okay? When the spiritual malady is overcome, which is when we follow the directions of steps four through nine, when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. Now, there's lots of pamphlets out there on the 10,000 children of the ego problem, 10,000 children of the spiritual malady problem, that you can manifest in the world. And I think the bigger recovery library you've got, maybe the more distracted you are from the single most important problem. Now, anger management needs to be suggested for people who are likely to get into a fight in treatment and get kicked out. But an anger management pamphlet does not constitute spiritual recovery. It constitutes a method of dealing with untreated alcoholism. And I made a commitment a long time ago to stop helping people only deal with the symptoms of untreated alcoholism. Many of those things need some pamphlets and some suggestions. However, simultaneously, the person needs to be working on the core issue that drives all of that, over-reliance on self. And that's really what the 12 by and, and the big book are, are essentially all about when it, when it comes to getting spiritually fit. 
It's overcoming this over-reliance on self, which many of us have been practicing since our childhoods for our own survival back then. Lisa. Exactly. No. Yes, these initial phases. I mean, Dr. Silkworth says it. You know, get them to a hospital. You got to get take care of the physical realm first. And and uh, you know, back in the old days, they used to sober them up in their houses and and detox them with liquor. And and uh, um, with such a litigious society, I'm not sure uh, that probably gets done as much as it used to. But I, I know it still does. Uh, but but the idea of this getting sober always has to start first. Then we need to be that we need to be enabled to live happily and, and whole lives. Uh, and so yes, there's this progression from getting away from the symptoms of the illness of the mind and the body to then addressing the symptoms of the illness of the spirit, which four through nine does. You know, step four says we had to face and be rid of. Um, the things in ourselves that have been blocking us, it doesn't say we had to face and be rid of alcohol or drugs because our liquor was but a symptom. That obviously has to be taken care of first. That's what got our attention. Healthy spirit supports a healthy mind. Healthy mind supports a healthy body. Unhealthy spirit supports an unhealthy mind. Unhealthy mind supports an unhealthy body. There are liquor symptoms of unhealthy mind and unhealthy body, and there are personality symptoms of unhealthy mind and unhealthy body. We move from dealing with the liquor symptoms early on into then dealing with the more personality types. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Ivan. The question has to do with discerning what it means uh, that we use our will to some degree in this process of recovery. And one of the phrases that informs that is we're responsible for the footwork, not the outcome. And that's not a bad summary of what it's all about. about. I think the book is all about discernment of proper use of my free will, what that means. And the it's a lot easier to use my will properly when my will doesn't constitute 90% of what I am. And what used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration when I'd walled God in now becomes a working part of the mind. So the directions are much easier to sense. But I'm always looking for the result because being human, I can think I know what God's will is. And I think I'm in real trouble if I ever think I know what God's will is. Like I saw an ad, I wanted to buy a canoe in the early 80s. So I was researching them. I thought I was being very disciplined. In, um, Of course, I was looking at Penobscot's old town canoes and all that and realized I couldn't afford the wooden canvas ones. But I... Um, but then all of a sudden I see an ad on TV for a canoe. Well, a little black and white TV that we watch periodically. <clears throat> and guess what I said? It's God's will that I now go out and get that canoe because <laughs> I saw an ad on TV. That's the kind of thing I think is the fine-tuning of long-term sobriety 
is that we really get out of the idea of thinking we know what God's will is other than through the intuition when it comes very, very naturally. So I think the whole, a whole uh, over-reliance on self, over-reliance on instincts, improper use of our free will all mean the same thing. And any wisdom tradition is designed to create right living for us by giving us directions to properly use our will. Yes? We get our free will back in step 10. In the context, using our free will in the context of God and others. Proper to God, appropriate to others. You generally won't go wrong if you use your will in the context of proper to God and appropriate to others. So if I was needed to calm my spilkas this morning by meditating and to suggest that we meditate on the dimension of misery averted and the dimension of joy revealed was doing something, making a suggestion, using my will, um, but it took into consideration God and others. So again, that's probably not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to look like, boy, was Fred self-centered. He had us meditate at the beginning of the meeting. Cool. Let's pick up where we left off yesterday in quickly finish up this four-step inventory. We talked about column number one. We list people, institutions, or principles with whom we're angry. We talked about column number two. I used the term video clips because you want to be specific as to the event that hurt you. And if you're not specific as to the event that hurt you, if you're global, when you get to the fourth column, which isn't visually in the book, but it's certainly the directions are there, you won't get as much of an opportunity to understand your part. And again, the constant caveat, if you have been physically, sexually, or emotionally abused, or you're working with a sponsee who has, make sure you're very careful at this point of the inventory. When it starts to talk about putting aside what others have done, I directly look for my part. Be very, very careful that they never re-victimize themselves by what I do to uh, make my dad hit me while I came home late from school. I don't care how late you were. It was never appropriate to be hit. That's the definition of abuse. No matter what you did, it should have never happened to you. So that, um, that caveat is really important. Um, there is an element of the fourth column that can be helpful uh, in that circumstance, and that element is you don't ask them what they did that triggered the perpetrator to do what they did, but you ask them what they might be doing since it happened now to sustain or make worse the resentment. Because even a justifiable resentment will kill you, and the tragedy of abuse is a, you know, is a, is a lifelong wound in some ways, to some degree. Simultaneously, you can realize that maybe by telling your story of abuse to new people, to new friends, gets nurturing from them, but it keeps the resentment alive. So there, that would be an example of, I need to find a different way to be nurtured besides talking about my abuse history with friends because talking about it also keeps the resentment alive. I get angry every time I think about it. And remember, nine times between pages 64 and 70, the big book is really clear that resentments kill us, even justifiable ones. Is that distinction relatively clear? It's really, really important. Paige. Yeah. Sure. 
Yeah. The patterns. Yeah, a, a great suggestion in that. And again, I think it's since being a sponsor, you're not functioning as a therapist. I think it's, um, and these wounds are so deep. I think you better know what you're doing if you're going to kind of take on that suggestion. And, and Paige would know what she's doing in that set of circumstances because she's been a professional. But the suggestion is not what did I do to trigger them to do what they did, but what did, how did I react? I, I fled. I got angry. And just to kind of see the impact, be able to start documenting the impact that it had on their lives. Yeah. Did I, it did? Right. And I'm just saying you need to have experience, whether it's professional or not. You need to be an experienced sponsor if you're working with somebody who has abuse, abuse issues to not muck that up a little bit more. That's all. question is, in, in those instances where we may need to talk about what happened early on, eventually do we not talk about it? I think we don't eventually not talk about it, but we talk about it when we do in a different way, and that is to help another person. It's part of that we will not regret the past and wish to shut the door on it. The most heinous things that happened to me now become the greatest asset that I have in working with somebody else to normalize their behavior and to be a witness to them of God's power love and way of life. Yeah. yeah. And so it doesn't trigger in us what it used to um, because we have been on a healing path. Yeah. And then we become um, wounded healers in that sense. Be careful of the healed wounder, by the way. Just a caveat. Be careful of the healed wounder. You may know some. So after this third, after the four-step prayer where, where we consider others' wrongs to us to be elements of their spiritual malady that allows us to pray for compassion, that we have compassion, uh, we get to this fourth, fourth column that talks about um, putting aside what others have done, I resolutely look for my own behavior. And this is the brilliance of this process. Uh, I find it interesting that Frank Buchman, who founded the Oxford Groups, a first century, a group attempting to recreate first century Christianity, um, found his spiritual experience through listening to a lecture, I think, in England, through a, a, a priestess, um, that that brought him from the depths of the misery of his life that were triggered by the resentment he had towards an academic board. This was literally eating him from the inside out. He had been hurt by this academic board, and he couldn't shake it, and he knew he was going to die if he didn't do something about it. And he got these directions, and, and it was all about dealing with resentments that brought him. And that's where our program of action comes from. The, the tenets of the Oxford groups, that um, um, and it makes perfect sense. And so we have to we have to deal with these things. So we have to acknowledge this common manifestation of self in the world, which is the inability to shake our emotional response to an old hurt. And that's all a resentment is. It's the inability to shake our emotional response to an old hurt. And we continue to feel the hurt. We continue to have the emotional response of anger. And, in, and when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of God. Um, so this my part was so powerful for me because I was an extreme example of self-run riot, though I usually didn't think so. And that was the depth of my illness. I got pretty drunk and pretty screwed up and pretty um, 
unhappy and all that, but the real depth of my spiritual malady was being an extreme example of self-overrun riot and not having a clue. And it was always very painful when people would point out how self-centered I was. And so any form of criticism really triggered this deep shame in myself. And when somebody would criticize me, I'd say, oh, do you also have a loaded gun so I could just shoot myself now? So... um, I view the fourth step as my opportunity to look again at my life with a new pair of glasses that this had been the case to some degree. You know, it says, it's all about karmic law. On page 62, the principle of karmic law is described in three consecutive sentences. Um, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of others and they retaliate. So toe-stepping, and then they react. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find, when doing a big book inventory, that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self that later placed us in a position to be hurt. Decisions based on self, toe-stepping, that later placed us in a position to be hurt, others' retaliation. So our troubles, others' retaliation, we think of our own making, our own toe-stepping. But then it goes on to say that we're an extreme example of toe-steppers run riot, though we usually don't think so. So if I'm running around stepping on everybody's toes and I don't know I'm doing it and they're all retaliating against me, what am I going to experience in that, with that blind spot? Why is everybody always picking on me? I was constantly a victim. And now I get the opportunity to investigate my toe-stepping. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. And the point is that we learn, often for the first time, our part in our misery. And the quick example I give is I resented a woman named Betty back in when I was 22. And she was my girlfriend. And so I listed Betty. And then in the second column, after I listed everybody else, I listed what she did, the video clip. And the video clip was she had an affair with my best friend while she and I were still living together. The parts of self-affected, ladies and gentlemen, were every one of those things on the handout, three parts of self, plus the ambitions. These are big resentments when they affect every part of you. And I was raised by an untreated codependent mother. I was dependent on her. And so in my early dating, I wasn't looking for girlfriends. I was looking for mothers. And I always dated professional caretakers, licensed caretakers, social workers, nurses, doctors. And, well, as Marion used to say, I was like a guy walking around with his umbilical cord trying to find these women to plug it into. So I could be whole and nourished and grow. Well, when she stomped on my umbilical cord, it was a big deal. So my third column was very extensive. Then it said, putting aside what Betty did, what did you do to set in motion trains of circumstances that may have contributed to Betty doing what she did? Then I had to look at the video clip and say, okay, who was I in that relationship? 
um, four months, six months beforehand. And here's what I came up with. Here's what I did to set in motion trains of circumstances. Here's the decisions I made on self that later placed me in a position to be hurt. I was never home. We were supposed to be a couple. I was never home. I was always drunk. I was supposed to be paying a third of the rent, but I didn't for two months. And then I had this beautiful numerological insight. If I pay all of this third month's rent, then I'll be caught up. So I said, I'll pay all that rent. Didn't. Didn't tell her, Mr. Avoidant. And then she gets in trouble with her landlord. Uh, Came home one night so drunk, I passed out in bed with her and sometime during the night wet the bed. Not cool. And to add insult to injury in the morning, I tried to blame her for it. (laughs) Then I was told to take each of those and categorize them selfish, dishonest, and considerate, self-seeking, or afraid, the, the, the kind of the master list of character defects. And I saw that every one of those, you know, I thought wetting the bed wasn't, conscious kind of thing, but it was certainly self-centered to to go to bed with her that drunk in the first place, Um, and then uh, trying to blame her in the morning, you know, (laughs) that lit up every one of those those five character defects. And so what ultimately was revealed to me through the glasses of accountability, the glasses of my part, was that the truth wasn't that she had an affair with my best friend while she and I were still living together. The truth was that I had essentially destroyed that relationship long before then. The relationship was over in in her eyes, but guess who was hanging on to nothing? And she wasn't having an affair with my best friend while she and I were still living together. She was starting to kick me out, and she was just moving along in her relationships. And then she became one of the first people on my harms to others list. And I was the victim of Betty the infidel. How could she do this to me? That's why I loved country western music. Instinctually, you will never, lyrics for country western music, bring your, bring your instincts list. And ambitions, you know, I saw her across the room. I know I'd never see her again, but the the ambition for romance, you know, it's just incredible. Um, She's my girl, she's my world, but it's not my truck. (laughs) Parked out in front of her house. Did I live that so many times? The new car, driving by at 2 or 3 in the morning, I don't think they were playing cards. Dead inside. So this emotional dependency was this constellation of instincts uh, was revealed to me. Um, and, and, and as I said before, I'm not sure the constellation of instincts changes that much. It just gets reduced in its influence. We still have, you know, some things change and some things stay the same, but the dimension is completely different. And the dimension of my humanness today blocks me less from God than it used to. I'm on a path of recovery. So this is the information that we share uh, in the fifth step. And boy, do we go till when? 10.30? Okay. I would like to, um, to say that I think at this juncture of the steps, Um, as a teacher, and I always wondered why the Joe and Charlie seminars um, got to step five like at 10 to noon on Sunday. Um, And then I finally figured out why. Uh, Most of what happens after five can be gotten by the person themselves from the book. With just a little phone call now and then that my role as a teacher, and I say I never apologize for how much I time talk, how much time I spend talking about step one. <clears throat> my role as a teacher, um, even in the lodge program where I work at the Dan Anderson Renewal Center, 
and we teach this stuff. We're teaching one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. And I'm not interested in people necessarily getting to a fifth step there. Um, but I do want them to be able to understand the directions for the fourth step and maybe have a fourth step check or not. Because there's a lot of information. This program is really uh, front end loaded. There's a lot more work for me as a sponsor, work in terms of time that I'm talking early on, uh, getting to four, then coaching four. But after that, you know, five is however long it takes, over two or three days or an afternoon, whatever it might be. And then six and seven, you just say, go read the instructions on the bottom of 75 and returning home for an hour. You know, I mean, these are very straightforward directions that now are based on this incredible volume of inf sequence of information and action up to that point. And, and so we're going to be going a little faster through the rest of this. Uh, but before we take our break, I just, that's amazing. We started at 9.15. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Um, the step four information in the 12 by is basically 90% about the instincts and a variety of different ways of talking about the instincts. And what is covered so scantily in the big book, in just these two references to a string of... Um, in most cases, it was found that our self-esteem, our pocketbooks, our ambitions, our personal relationships, including sex, were hurt or threatened. Was it our self-esteem, our security, our ambitions, or personal or sex relations which had been interfered with? That's, that's largely the extent of exposure to that, and I think for a very simple reason. You don't need to know as much about the instincts to get sober as you do to live lives of good, happy and, happily and of good purpose. Hey, Brian. Question has to do with um, does thorough mean, <clears throat> does I, my paraphrase of the question, does thorough mean we're never done writing? And no, obviously not. Uh, but I think a person needs to spend a reasonable amount of time doing this, um, following these simple directions. Um, to do and to, to stop writing when you're still finding stuff, I don't see, I don't see why one would do that. Um, but at the same time, Local practice is is local practice, and I respect that. And what kind of the what what works is what works in different regions. And and again, I'm just going back to the directions because the message of this founded wisdom tradition was written by by the originators. And so the idea of people spending too much time on this, you know, I'd, I'd have to know the specifics of, of really what that meant, because um, in some ways. Um, to be overly thorough, um, I, I don't know. I guess in some ways I, I'm not quite sure what that dilemma is.
Well, I think that anybody who would get that level of opportunity to write a four-step based on the big book is really blessed because I think a lot of people don't even come close to getting that. And it's progress, not perfection at every, at every turn. Ivan? I don't know. <laughs> Do it and then call me and tell me how it worked out. It says continued in 10 anyway. So. Yeah, we get to not ever leave this process uh, when we get up uh, to 10, which is a daily version of 4 through 9. Um, and, and there's lots of dynamics to this. But the idea of some groups, you know, I said yesterday that, that um, some groups that use the recovery dynamics will have folks in the second column, the video clip, the cause, 1,300, 1,500 examples. And uh, that's pretty rare. I mean, that would be the thin point of the bell curve of how many video clips people have. Uh, and others might have <clears throat> very few. But the idea is, in my mind, is simply in the purity of the effort. And, and for 12 years, I didn't know anything about all this stuff, and, and, and I would still declare myself having been just fine back then. Uh, so this happens in a variety of different ways. And, and we can't get too... I think I have to pay close attention to this original message so that I don't wander off think, thinking there's something completely different going on here. But in terms of how obsessive-compulsive we are uh, in following these directions, you know, there, there's a problem in that as well. So, uh, I, I think it would probably be wisest to uh, take our break now and, and uh, come back at uh, quarter to 11. Eastern Standard Time. Oh, don't forget to read your 25...